You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Supplemental number 61, the one with Walter Koenig. Welcome to a supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Today, a very special episode. Our in-depth interview with the actor that you know as Mr. Chekhov and and so many other roles, Walter Koenig. Um, How much fun was that, Norman? He is an absolute delight, an absolute sweetheart of a man. What a gentleman and so unbelievably open about his story. I I think that's the thing that uh, surprised me the most. He he gave us a lot of his time and just whatever we wanted to talk about, he was willing to share in that conversation, had a story for everything. Mm -hmm. And we did what I've always wanted to do, which is um, I always assume that people listening to a Star Trek podcast know about an actor who did Star Trek. They pretty much have heard the Star Trek stories. And we have this opportunity to go in a very different direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be a nice surprise for everyone who listens to this interview because I don't think it is your stereotypical standard interview with a Star Trek alumni, especially from the original series, of which you've heard countless times several of the same incarnations of the same story. Yeah. And in this case, I really do think that Walter, he really gave us the opportunity and really opened up a lot to our questions and allowed us to peer inside or behind the curtain, behind the veil of the real man. And it was it was really eye opening in several aspects. Yeah. Not just from a professional career, from a personal standpoint as well. Yeah, it's very personal, and that's what I love about it. And I'm so thankful that uh, he took his time to do that with us now. All of that said, um, as you all know, everything is being recorded remotely now, and we're sort of, uh, well, we're just subject to the quality of internet connections. Uh, So we've done as much as we can to clean this up, uh, to try to trim out some of the the garbled noise that sometimes comes from a not-so-pristine collection. It wouldn't, you know, it's not as perfect as it would be if we were all sitting there in the same room recording on the same set of mics. Uh, But you know what? Put on your headphones, uh, crank it up, enjoy. He's such a blast, and uh, I hope that everybody enjoys it. Now, the interesting thing, John, about what you said is that for a long time, and I'm talking about a long time because I used to be, you know, a fan of hunting down bootleg copies of interviews and copying, <laughs> you know, like taped yes. interviews from other people who used a microphone at a convention. So right, right. I know that we are a little bit spoiled when it comes to modern technology and recording people, you know, with modern day interview uh, recording technology. And 
I think it's kind of neat that we're offering a lot of our listeners the ability just to be able to hear Walter yeah. in a real-time interview, but take it in the spirit of these kind of old-fashioned bootleg style this is the best that, you know, we can offer because it's the only thing that we can offer type of quality, right? Exactly. That's perfectly said. I, I love the way that you put that into context. All right. Well, uh, it, it's a privilege to be uh, talking today. Yeah. I mean, look, you might know him as Chekhov, but I actually, I was pleased to learn that Walter Koenig is actually the master pimp of the Sawtell VA intern dorm and, and the man who was kissed by Betty Grable. I like those accolades too. On the lips. On the Ooh, lips. On the lips. Because you, you paid her a pretty great compliment and uh, it's all in your book, which is yeah. awesome. But I, I love how open you are about uh, your, your exploits and escapades. <laughs> And, and the Betty Grable story is such a, a cool one because you were working together and you really sort of uh, sounds like, you know, went, went to bat for her and for, uh, uh, for the work that you're doing. And she, she repaid well, I, you I, with I, that I, kind I, of kiss. Yeah. I'll well, fill in the story very quickly. So we, uh, folks will know what we're talking about. I was doing a play with Jackie Coogan, you know, Uncle Festus. Uh, and I actually took a month off from shooting Star Trek to do the play. This is the third season of our Star Trek engagement on television. And I had so little to do that when the opportunity arose to guest star in a play in Chicago, a comedy, and I'd be starring opposite Jackie Coogan, the, the, the wonderful child actor from the Charlie Chaplin movies, as well as Uncle Festus from the Adams Family. I thought, you know, what a terrific opportunity and uh, Warp Factor 4 just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> so um, we went back there, and um, while we were in our, there was a sister theater uh, next to the Pheasant One Playhouse where we were going to be performing, and they were opening a play, uh, and Betty Grable, uh, who some of your older uh, uh, listeners will know, she was known as uh, Miss USA Legs, during the Second World War, all the aircraft and battleships had, had a picture of her legs on their on their craft. Hey, her um, image is uh, immortal. So, yeah. 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 And uh, she was opening uh, that night as well in the, in the sister theater. And um, and we were invited to, to come and watch her and then to to sit with her afterwards in a, in a restaurant and have a uh, interview with a radio personality from Chicago. This was just outside of Chicago. And the radio personality, I can't remember his name, which is probably a good thing. He was kind of a jerk. And um, he was known for having, having opening night interviews with actors uh, when their shows open and having them on the radio with him. So we invited Betty Grable for good reason, but she was, you know, she had been a huge star in the 40s and the 50s, and um, and uh, and they invited me along because I was in the play with Jackie. And the first thing the guy says, first thing out of his mouth is, he says, "I bet you don't even know who Betty Grable is," which is really a, a, an insult. Yeah, uh, she's no, she, you know, she was a star in the 40s and 50s. This was the late 60s, you know. And he's, he's intimating that she's 
old now and, and, and is no longer a viable entity and one that a person that we should know. So I took umbrage to that particular comment and went into a discourse uh, regarding uh, how popular she still was and how she was um, uh, actually having to juggle several jobs that, uh, that she had been cast in. One was in Czechoslovakia as a, in the lead in a foreign film. Two involved uh, um, American television series. And another was another Broadway play. And I was making it up as I went along. Uh, because I was just so furious with this life. And she just sat and looked at me and said nothing. And, uh, but when I got done, uh, I got up and I left. I, I left the stage because uh, I was so upset. And, uh, and then I went back. It was a dinner, it was a dinner th- uh, restaurant, obviously. And I went back to my table. And I had to go to the, the John for a minute. And uh, when I got up to go to the John, we crossed paths. She was coming off the stage. They were finished with their, with their interview. And uh, she stopped me, stood in front of me, put her hands up on my face, and said, baby, you got class, and gave me a big kiss on the, on the lips. That was terrific. Mm. That was, wow. That's, that's the coolest. That is absolutely yeah. the coolest. Um, and, and I tell you what, I, I won't get uh, too deeply here uh, asking you the story about being the pimp of the Sawtell VA intern dorm. We, we can save that for the book, but mm-hmm. I just found it hilarious that you described yourself that way, <laughs> even though it was a little bit of a case of uh, mistaken identity. So uh, we'll, we'll let readers uh, pick that up. But I, I want to ask you this. You're, uh, in your book, you have so many great stories and and you know going back to the this glimpse of new york in the 1940s uh as a child and then uh working your way finally out to la to start working as an actor here and i'm just curious if you can talk to us a little bit about the the process and the mechanics of putting together a book like this i'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit about how you how you set about it well um you know, it's a lot easier to write an autobiography than it is a, a, non, a, a fiction piece. Because fiction piece requires structure, requires relationships, characters, development, detail uh, that you have to create out of, you know, out of your imagination. I only had to conjure my memory for an autobiography. And I, the, the, the traumatic things that occurred to me, as, as they do to everybody, have a way of sticking, you know, of staying with me. And those things I, rec- I had very little problem with recall. So, yeah, the, the highlights and the lowlights of my life were, were easily accessible because they became imprinted. Uh, and uh, I just went pretty much chronologically, particularly the first volume, which, you know, this is actually a two-volume piece uh, beaming up and getting off. Uh, the first volume was, was published in 97, 98, and included everything uh, to the fourth season of Babylon 5. And, and that was totally in chronological order, from being a you know, very young child all the way through school and, and uh, you know, trying to get work uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles and, and studying at the neighborhood playhouse and the people that I met and the, and the actors who I engaged with. Um, so that, that was all there. It was, it was, uh, it was, 
And a, a lot of that is the reason why I'm so neurotic is because I've never been able to disengage from that. You know, it's always there. It's always something uh, that, uh, that is a part of my life. <clears throat> so I've had down, you know, I've had pitfalls and I've had uh, uh, potholes uh, and I, I recall those as, as well as I, well, these days I recall them a lot better than I do yesterday. But those things are very much uh, a, a part of my consciousness. And so they were, as I say, they were, they were easy to come by, uh, starting at the age of four or five years old. Wow. Well, I, can I ask you about it? You, you brought up a word that uh, you use very often in your writing, which is neurotic. And you, you talk very openly about that. And I, I'm just curious, how, how, do you, how do you define that for yourself? What, what, what does that mean to you? And, and how is that sort of like this running theme? Well, I think in the, most, in the broadest terms, it's never feeling... And I, and, I, and I hesitate to even say this because it always ends up sounding like I'm fishing for a compliment. And, but you asked me the question, so I'm, I'm going to answer it as candidly as I can. It's never feeling that whatever I have achieved is really worthwhile and really has any sustaining um, credibility that it in any way defines me uh, today. It defined me at the moment, and I took joy in whatever success I might have had, but I can't hold on to it. I can't retain it and walk proud. Um, and, and damn it, that's, that's too bad because I've had a, I've had a, you know, a, not a huge success, not a huge career, but I've had some, you know, interesting uh, experiences and some, and some minor triumphs and things that I wish I could, I wish I could conjure and always have available to feel good about, you know, uh, unfortunately I remember the bad things at least as well as I do the good ones. And they're as present in my life. So that's a problem. Uh, you know, I was, uh, you're talking about anything, right? I was, a, I was a virgin until I was 22. Uh, not because I didn't like girls, but because I, was, I had this fear of rejection. I, you know, and I couldn't put myself in the position of being turned down. Uh, it was only when I became an actor full time and young women started to approach me. Uh, that I, I, you know, I found myself uh, at, at ease with with uh, females, with girls, uh, and then it became a slightly different story. But it was only because they approached me, because I had this very negative feeling about myself. Um, now, you know, I'm not quasi-moto, nor have I ever been, <laughs> but. That is, that's been there. That sense has been there. And now at the age, and it's interesting, because now at the age of 83, I have a little bit more perspective. And I'm looking back as much as I am looking forward. I'm looking forward with some trepidation, because there are fewer years to look forward to. But I'm looking back and seeing how the, the things that I considered failures um, <laughs> prevented me from being more bold, more aggressive, just in general, just with my life, just with my career. Uh, uh, people, you know, they know what they're going to do when they're 12 years old. 
certainly by the time they're in their teens. They, most people have some idea what they're going to do. I didn't tempt fate by um, addressing the future. I had no sense of, of what I would be a success at. I knew that um, I, I was well-received even as an adolescent when I performed in plays. But it seemed preposterous that I could actually make a career of being an actor. When I thought of actors, I thought of those, the older among you who, for whom these names will resonate. I thought of people like Rock Hudson, you know, James Cagney. I thought of people who, Humphrey Bogart, you know, and I wasn't any of those people. So forget about it. It wasn't going to happen. And um, I graduated with a degree, ironically, in psychology. And I was going to go on to graduate school at UCLA because I knew I, I had an empathic quality and that I could, that I could uh, relate to people and I could understand where they were coming from. And I felt that I, I had an intuitive sense uh, on what makes them tick. And what I've subsequently learned is that's not necessarily a good thing for a psychologist. The more, the more distanced you are, the more detached you are, the better you probably are as a psychologist or as a psychiatrist. Uh, um, but that's not the way I thought. I thought that if I understood them better, if I understood what was going on inside their mind, if I understood their pain, I could relate to it and could then uh, have a discourse with them uh, with, with a full understanding of where, you know, what made them tick and why they felt about themselves where they did. And perhaps give them a sense of self-esteem that wasn't there as strongly as it should have been. The way I felt pretty much about myself. Um, actually, and, and the reason I felt that way is um, after I finished college, after I finished drama school, I came back to uh, Los Angeles and I got a job in, of all places, the California Institute of Professional Psychology. It's a teacher for graduate psychology students, uh, people who are, who are in their mid 20s or late 20s who are going for their masters or even their PhDs. And I decided to teach it as if it were an acting course. Uh, I had heard all the psychobabble, psychobabble and all the words, you know, and uh, that, that psychologists were used. And uh, they, well, they were plucked out of the textbook. And I, I didn't think that it was as meaningful as if I could explain, if I could talk related them more on who they were, not on what the textbook said, but on who they were. So I'd make up lab experiments, and I wouldn't tell them in advance. And I'd bring, I'd bring something into class, the, the most interesting one. Actually, I had a class of about 20 students. They were, I'd say, anywhere from the mid, late 20s to their mid or late 30s. And I called one of the students up in advance at home, and I said, I want you to come in tomorrow and be very sad, be very, very upset. And don't explain to anybody why you're upset. And I want you to decide what it is that, that is upsetting you. So you don't have to tell me what it is. He said, okay. Then I called up another student. And I said, I want you to laugh at student A. Student A is the first student that I spoke to. I said, why don't you laugh at him through the whole, through the whole class? Just kind of ridicule him. And I said, don't ask me why. So we came to class, we started, and student A said, and student B was, 
to make, making fun of him. And the rest of the class began to pick up on this. And I got more and more angry and more and more incensed. And I just went on and went on. And then we took a break about halfway through. And the students rushed the guy who was making fun of student A. That was, that was student B. And we're ready to kill him. They're, we're ready to put him on a, on a, on a pit fire and, and turn him, you know. And they were screaming at him. And of course, he didn't, he knew that he'd been making fun of student A, but he didn't know why. So we got back and, and they started to, to, to scream about him. You know, what does he do? I said, well, hold on, hold on. I said, this is all staged. So I did this on purpose. I, I, and now, 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 this is the interesting, this is the interesting part. This is the, um, um, what's the word? Climax? It's when something happens that is, it is great and you didn't expect it to happen. And it works out perfectly. I can't. It'll come to me. It may come. The, the, the serendipitous <laughs> moment. <laughs> yes. Serendipitous. Thank you. Nice meeting you guys. I'm the guardian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they started screaming about this guy. I said, aha. Now listen to yourselves. I said, this is very interesting. We found, oh, we found out what it was. Before that, we found out what it was the guy was laughing about. He had made up his mind that another student who wasn't in my class, but was friends with them all, that his sister or his girlfriend had died. And that was the thing that he had given himself, that his girlfriend died and he was very upset. He, didn't, he hadn't told that to anybody. He told it in the class when they wanted to know what he was upset about. And then they were furious with me because I had, I had you know, uh, subjected them to that and I had exploited this chap uh, by uh, having this brought up in class. And I said, but listen to yourselves. Listen how pissed off you all are. Where is this empathy? Where is the oath? Where's the relief? Where's the sense that, thank God it's not true. I said, you're upset because I fooled you. I screwed with your heads. You're upset with me because of what I did to you. Nothing wrong with that. That's human nature. That's that's the way we behave. That's what we do. But it proves a point that that, that that will happen in a circumstance where you will invest your own experience in self into a situation and disregard the, uh, the client's problem in so doing. So it's I interesting. It's, 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 it's almost as if it was like a, a miniature acting class study in psychology and study in human nature. It's yeah, a, it yeah. almost kind of, it, 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 it's a self-perpetuating uh, exercise, if you will. Yeah, yeah. There's the thing called psychodrama. And when I was 17 years old, I attended a psychodrama uh, institute. I was part of a, a camp that I was working at. And, uh, and what they did was they, they used somebody in the class um, to, be, to play opposite the, the patient. And they set up a scene. And so he was there for the patient to play off of. Um, I don't think that occurred to me at the time that that's what I was doing, but in fact, it was something of that nature. But what I thought was so interesting is how it worked out, because it made a point. It was just like it's saying to you, don't just rely on the bloody text. Don't rely on what Freud said. And, and you know, back in the 70s, Freud was still the, 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 the god of psycho psychiatry. Freud and Jung, you know, who would tell you that homosexuals are homosexuals because they had 
passive um, fathers and dominating mothers. You know, that was the, the theory of, of the time. We didn't know about genetics and, and how people are born differently, you know. Uh, so I just wanted them to be able to put themselves in the shoes of the client and check it out from where their client was coming from and not from what they had read in, in a book. So um, it turned out great. It turned out great. This was in the 70s when um, everybody graded everybody, where not only did the teacher grade the students, but the students graded the teacher. And as angry as they were at me uh, for, for screwing with their heads, I got a great grade <laughs> from everybody. And say ultimately they saw that there was benefit in what I had done, and 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 and, and when dealing with uh, with patients when they would ultimately do if they were clinical psychologists uh, that uh, take into account uh, not only what they had read about what, what how people should uh, react but how they really do and what they're thinking and what's going on in their brains. So I don't I don't remember why we got onto this, but um, it's my it's a little story that's in the book. I find it so interesting and refreshing that in your books, you've been able to talk about your mental state and your, your interests. And, and again, you're, you're um, being neurotic with such clarity and uh, such openness. And, and I'm just, you know, clearly you have this fascination about how your mind works and, and uh, about how other people's minds work by going through sessions like that. And I, you know, over the course of, of all these decades and being a, a student of psychology, and a, what what benefits did you take away from analysis? Where where do you, you know where do you think your growth happened, or or your your personality, your insights diverged as you went through this? Well, I don't know. I don't know if they had. I don't know if they did. Hmm. Um, I. Um, I, I did become very uh, self-involved, and I and I did do a lot of introspective thinking about how I behaved, and I took umbrage with a lot of the things I did, and I uh, chastised myself for behavior that I thought uh, was uh, was um, um, disrespectful to myself. That was that was ins- insulting. Um, uh, that that I didn't come, I didn't come, uh, I didn't measure up to who, who I thought I should be, um, and I would ch- check my behavior and the experiences I had uh, as to against what I believe uh, the way people should behave, and would find areas uh, of, of, that I considered failure, and uh, made me feel, you know, that I that I wasn't the, I wasn't the person that I should be. Um, but, I don't but, want to make it sound too... <laughs> yeah, but, I, I, but clearly, you know, there, there's a lot of outside influence as well. I mean, I, I understand the idea about internalizing a lot of that, but, you know, from, uh, from reading your books, a couple of stories really stood out to me about uh, your reactions, and I think probably pretty well-placed and understandable reactions to things going on around you. You know, uh, the, you, you mentioned something about working with Christopher Lloyd. And um, 
I, I, I bring this up not because I'm trying to fish for dirt on Christopher Lloyd, but I, I thought you made a very interesting point talking about how you're working uh, in New York with this, you know, all-star cast of people and Christopher Lloyd is one of those and that friendship sort of fell apart. Um, and, and partly because he was in character all the time and, and you felt like you kind of lost this human and uh, uh, friendly relationship that you had with the real person there. Incidents like that, I mean, I, I, did, did I sort of explain that correctly, what went on there? Was, uh... Well, he was doing Taxi, in the TV series Taxi. He did that also in Neighborhood Playhouse, by the way. <laughs> he did the Crucible, doing it like that. You know? I don't know how Arthur Miller would feel about it. But I, I, he was doing Taxi, and we were doing the Star Trek, the motion picture. And I hadn't seen him in several years. And I knocked on his dressing room, and he came to the dressing room door. And I expected, hey, Walter, how you doing? How you doing? Really? And I said, hey, Chris. That's what I got. And I'm looking at him thinking, is it going on here? You know? And uh, I realized that he was in character, that he was still in character. Uh, now, that's okay. That's okay. Leonard Nimoy was always in character. But I had grown to expect that. I never took umbrage at that. I mean, he was always Spock. I knew, I knew uh, Spock a lot better than I did Leonard Nimoy. But Christopher Lloyd, we had been buddies. I'd been to his, his mansion in Connecticut. Came from vast amount of money, by the way. Uh, we were best buddies. I made him laugh, you know, so that was really a relationship. So to have that, to be to feel like uh, I, all of a sudden I was a prop, you know, for him, it pissed me off. And it took me, it took me a few years to get, get over it. Uh, it just it hurt. It just personally it hurt. Um, probably far too much. But I told you, I'm, you know, I'm a little weird that way. Uh, he did come to work on Star Trek Three, I think. Yeah. After... The first day when, when I didn't talk to him, I just said, ah, screw it. I can't, I can't, keep, I can't keep it up. You know? Wait, was I, that ever your approach I, as an actor, was to do this where you're in character all the time? Because no. that, that does, okay, yeah, because there are a lot who do, and it, it creates a bit of a barrier with, with the other cast. Well, I don't think you have to. I don't yeah. think you have to. I will say this, and uh, now I'm contradicting myself. I'm, I preface it by saying, as much as our cast was esteemed and loved and admired by the public, and, and they were, and we were, everybody, Leonard, George, Jimmy, Michelle, uh, DeForest, Bill, as much as we were, the only person who couldn't have been replaced and, and done as well was Spock, was Leonard. Because Leonard was Spock. With all the time that I knew him on the sound side, we didn't go out and have beers together, so I didn't know him outside of them. He was, he was always Spock. So that he wasn't playing at it, he was. And then I learned that there were some problems uh, away from Star Trek because of that, you know, some family problems. But he was, he was that into the character. A thousand different actors could have played Sulu or Scotty or, or, 
or Captain Kirk, as good as, as they all were, or Walter Katie, or probably 2,000. In any case, no, I don't mean 1,000. Anyway, in any, in any case, um, a character is most effective when it's intuitive, I believe. I know there are actors who do research. You know, I'm not talking about researching a real being, a real person. There you, you might have to do some research if you're, if you're playing um, somebody who was, was real, you know, FDR or somebody. You would have to. But if you're, if you're, if you're creating this character, you've got to find it in yourself. What is it in me that I can relate to? What is it about this character? Oh, I get that. I get him reacting like that. Oh, and that's a springboard for this. And it becomes less intellectualized and more intuitive. And that's when I taught acting, and I taught acting at several institutions, including UCLA, I made a point of that. I said, don't pretend. Find, find out in yourself what there is in this character. If you pretend, you, the audience will know you're pretending. We make believe. But if you really experience it, if it's something that really rings a bell with you, the audience is going to believe that you are that character. So that's pretty much been my, my philosophy. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> well, I, I just, you mentioned people like Leonard and his uh, absorption into Spock or a person like Christopher Lloyd and his absorption into Reverend Jim and, and how that uh, they may be very effective and very good at the role that they're playing. But then there's a downside to that, which is you, you lose a bit of camaraderie with your fellow actors. And um, so I was curious if you ever found yourself in a position where that was ever your approach to doing a role, but it, it sounds like, no, <laughs> you didn't. Uh, I did, it, I did yeah. it once and it cost me a role. I was, I was auditioning for a play. Oh. I really wanted to be in it, and I really thought I had a, a sense of how it should be played. And it was a very moody character, and uh, I can't think of the name of the play now. Uh, and uh, I really just wanted to get in an audition. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to, you know, chit-chat with the director. So as soon as I came in, I, I already brought... I brought myself in character. The only problem with that is the director thought that I was a sullen moody guy. I didn't want to work with him. So he didn't cast me. And I didn't find that out until later. Because I thought I, I, I had it. Well, I probably would have done very well in the part. But I didn't get him the chance to see that I was malleable, you know, that I, that I was an inflexible character that could only do one thing. I just showed him I, I, I just got into character for the purposes of that audition. So that's the only time I did that. I got, I screwed up auditions for other reasons, but that was that only time for that. So Walter, in looking at uh, trying to organize all of your thoughts for this, the second part of your autobiography, was it easier for you to, to fall into the habit of, finding more of like the, the more negative aspects of, of these neurotic episodes in your life and find those as being, okay, I can write around this because I know that experience so well. Because as you said earlier, your neuroses, um, they, they were ingrained in you and you remember a lot about them. So 
were they the pillars to write around certain successes or did you find yourself almost remembering, you know what, if I didn't continue to sabotage myself in this way, my career could have been this way or this path could have done, uh, taken a different turn. Is, is that how you went about writing your book? I, I don't think so. Uh, I do think I sabotaged myself. I don't think it, in, in, the, in the long run it, it made a, a great deal of difference. I mean, I came up with, and it's in the book, I came up with some really ridiculous ideas for auditions. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, did, I didn't get the part. I was, I was trying to be inventive. Uh, I was trying to, to be creative, take a different a- attack on it. And uh, I, 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 I made the wrong, wrong choices. It happened half a dozen times. And they were good parts. And I didn't get them as a, as a consequence of trying to be adventurous and, and, and inventive. Uh, but I, it, I don't think ultimately it wouldn't have made that much of a difference uh, in, in the long run. Uh, the second part of the book was just a little bit more difficult to do uh, because, you know, I, 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 the first part I, I wrote chronologically. I started as a little kid and I, you know, and went through the, the main phases of my life and the, and the main instances and they came to me pretty easily. By the time I got to 1997 when I wrote off on it and it was published, uh, I had experienced a lot of uh, what I was going to experience, you know, uh, there's still, I think there's still uh, 20 years worth of stuff in it. It's, it's new, but uh, mostly uh, momentous or monumental or traumatic things that happened to me happened to me before then. So um, I actually included in the second half uh, some things that happened uh, during the first half, but I hadn't written about, but they were still, you know, they, they, they still had a viability, uh, so I put them in the second half. I mean, you, you get to be 63 or however old I was, uh, and a lot of what you were going to do, you've done, you know, with your life. So they were uh, part of the, uh, most part of the first half. But I think there's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to be discouraged and say, well, I've already read the first half. I'm not going to go buy the book again to reread the first half. Um, first of all, it's worth reading a second time. And second, <laughs> I think there's I think there's still things that happen in the last 20 years since uh, since the fourth year of Babylon Five uh, that are they're worth examining. And also, my perspective has changed. That's perhaps more than anything. Um, uh, you, you live that extra 20 years, and you're able to incorporate you're able to sit down and think about the past in more, um, in, in, in more um, accurate terms, I think, in, in, in more objective terms, uh, why things happened the way they did or how they affected me um, and make me understand uh, the, 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 the way things happened. Uh, so it's, from my point of view, it's been it's been beneficial. It's uh, it's it's been a help in understanding myself and coming to peace with myself a little bit more. But, um, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Like during this whole process, you know, in in trying to figure out, you know, these last, you know, these last um, more recent sets of memories, and then coming it all, you know, bringing it all together. Were you able to find a peace within yourself, or to find a cathartic moments, or to find some type of uh, way just to justify, you know what, 
yes, this happened, but now I've been able to move past it and, and given yourself like a, a better road for self-healing, you know, in the years to come. You guys, you guys ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we, we could just keep talking about Star Trek, but, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's true. Um, it, it has given me a certain piece of myself. And uh, I find myself, uh, you know, reevaluating the past. And uh, uh, what was the expect? What's 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 it all been, Alfie? Or what was the, what was? Oh, it what's it all about, Alfie? Yeah. What's it all about, Alfie? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I've come to a place where I say it's not been bad. It's not been bad. It's considering that I had no, I had no. Uh, clear path to follow when I was a kid. I had no sense of what I was going to accomplish or not accomplish or, uh, or where my life was going to go. Uh, and that I, I, put, I put obstacles in my way uh, uh, that I, I somehow was able to, if not hurdle over them, at least trip over them and keep going, you know, and, uh, and feel fairly good fairly good about my life and myself and who I am. Uh, you know, there's some family situations that are very painful and they'll never go away. But um, in terms of who I am and uh, how far I've come and if it's been a worthwhile life, I think it's been pretty worthwhile. It's not been great. It's not been, you know, there are actors who I wish I had their talent and certainly their success. Um, you know, I'm still writing. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a novel. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to live long enough to finish it because it's a very complicated story. It's a, about serial murders, uh, but from the victim's point of view, uh, also from the killers, but from the, vic- from the antagonist, the protagonist, as well as the victims. And I bounce back and forth a lot. Uh, so that it's very, it's kind of com- complicated and complex, and I don't know how good the writing is, but it keeps me uh, in, in, uh, engaged, and uh, and I, I enjoy the process. You know what writing is? It's become it's been my, it's where I live. You know, particularly now. I mean, everybody, we, we all got a problem, guys. You know, we don't go out for coffee anymore. You know, right. Um, uh, so when I sit down for those, and I don't do it every day. I'm afraid to say. But when I sit down at the computer and I enter that world with those characters, I'm with somebody. I'm with people. I'm communicating. I'm relating to them and they're relating to me. And uh, it enriches those hours for me. It makes it, it makes it worthwhile. And when I get up, if I've done a half a page or I've done two pages, I feel like, well, you know, it's not been a day wasted. So um, I feel good about that. And I feel that uh, despite the, uh, the places where I have, you know, and I, and I joke about some of them in the book, but the places where, where I did not succeed and I did not achieve uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, reward or sense of well-being that I might have, um, I still feel that uh, I've done okay. I've been okay, and uh, it's been a life of 
It's been a laugh at least that I, I feel good enough about to talk to you about. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was funny lines. You know, I wouldn't want to talk to anybody about it, you know. Not talk about it. it's, it's not rehashing. But there have been, been good things, and, and that's why I wrote the book. I wrote it for the fun of doing it and the, and the experiences that I can view. With that perhaps is the, is, the, is the best thing I can say about myself. That is, as devastating as some things were at the moment, and devastating they were. I mean, it's not hyperbole when I say I was really, really upset. Uh, I got over it. I got over it at least to the point where I went back and, and did it again. You know, and I, I went back and I said, okay, screw it. Uh, I still have to do this. This is, this is uh, what I'm, I'm meant to do, and, uh, and I'm going to continue doing it. I didn't, I didn't give up. And that's one of the things, by the way, and I'd say this to all the, your younger audience out there who, who might be entertaining the idea of becoming some kind of performer, dance, singer, actor, whatever, is you've got to have passion for the work. You've got you've to be so thoroughly involved that you can get past the miscarriages. You can get past the, the devastation and the disappointments. And they are there, believe me. There are very few people who, who sailed through. Many, many people who had very, very you know, disillusioning, depressing experiences. But they've also had great successes, and they've had wonderful achievements. And, and each time you, you, you come up, up against a failure, you've got to live with it, suffer through it, get through it, you know, take the five days or the ten days, take out the cat of nine tails, whip yourself <laughs> aggressively, make that blood come, baby, and then go back and, go back and try again. And, and maybe that's what I'm most proud of, is that despite the things where I felt I failed, uh, that I that I, 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 I did not uh, do well, I, 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 I kept coming back. And I, I pride myself on that. And I take some measure of, of, of accomplishment from doing that. You know, if nothing else comes out of this interview, it's the fact that you gave us and everybody listening the permission for self-flagellation. It was an old teaching trick, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so I, I do want to talk about Star Trek a bit because, well, we are a Roddenberry yeah. podcast, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. But I, I, I want to frame it in this. You know, you've mentioned a few interesting things. You're talking about uh, successes and failures along the way and uh, kind of the actor that you wanted to be or want, want to be like. And take us back to those months before Star Trek because I'm I'm curious – what are the kinds of gigs that, you, that you're going after? What are the types of roles that you want? How do you see yourself then before Star Trek comes along? Well, I'll, get, I'll, give you, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Um, I was going to Neighborhood Playhouse at school, at the professional drama school. And as you, as you did allude, in my class was James Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Dabney Coleman, Jessica Walker, Brenda Vaccaro, Elizabeth Ashley, all who became movie stars. They all starred in movies. Uh, and that's out of a class of 70. So it was, a, it was a lot of skilled performers. And that's not including the very skilled performers who did not go on and achieve success in the business. Because we had those too. Unfortunately, their names you, you'll never know because they didn't get there. 
I was, I was very good. I was coming out. I was the first of all, I was the only actor in the class who could not sing at all. Not a wit. I could not carry a tune. And we did a musical. The last show we did of this, it was a showcase show in the second season of the Playhouse. And that's the one that you, you invite all the casting directors and the directors to and producers from the outside to see your work. And everybody got to sing in the show except me because I could not sing. So I didn't get to sing. But, but the, the capriciousness of this business being what it is, because I didn't get to sing, I got the only totally non-speaking, non-singing role in, in, in the show. And it was, it ultimately was the role with the most words. He was the director of this show. It was a show we were putting on a, a play. So Christopher Lloyd sang and, and 15 actors you never heard of sang and everybody else sang. And I only had dialogue. And I kind of, kind of a jivey character that I made up. And one of my teachers was Sid Pollack. I think you probably remember Sid. He was a very, very, became a very, very successful director. director sure. Well, he loved the role that I played in this play with, where I was cast because I was a failure as a singer. Um, but he loved me in the role. He liked the role that I played. And he recommended me to a director named John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer was another enormously successful director. And as a consequence of that, I was tentatively cast in a movie with Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters that Frankenheimer directed and that Sid Pollack was his assistant. And it was on Sid's uh, recommendation. Well, make a long story short, I didn't get the role. It wasn't shot in New York where it was supposed to be. It was shot in L.A. I came to L.A. to do the part. It didn't work out. So uh, Sid, Sid says to me, you're in this movie. You're going to pay Big Dom, who was the leader of the gang, was always in the billiard Billion room in the bar, and 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 the and the, and the, and the, and the oh, he says to me, what kind of parts did I play? So this was a tough guy, the leader of a gang, and I was going to play Big Dom. Well, I don't know what the machinations were, I don't know what transpired, but that part was changed from Big Dom to Pretty Boy, and when I changed to Pretty Boy, they got another actor. I, I say hardly fair. Come on. Like five, five isn't good enough anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't get that part. But I played a lot of hoodlums. I, I did a, um, a, an Alfred Hitchcock hour where I played the leader of a gang. And my, my uh, gang mates, my, my followers included names you may remember, but Tony Mazzanti, Zalman King, and they all, they all ended up doing series. They had, had their own series. And they, they were my gang followers. And I played the leader of the gang, opposite James Kahn. So that was an interesting, serendipitous kind of situation because it was great fun working with Jimmy and having this other act. So I played hoodlums. Uh, I, I looked younger than I was. Uh, it was always good to look younger in those days if you looked under 18 because that meant... Uh, they didn't have to bring the teacher on the set. They didn't have to pay uh, a teacher to, to be on the set because you were, you were still in school and you had to have somebody there to teach it. Once you're 18, you're out of school, uh, they, they, they could save that expense. So when, when, they, when they went to cast these roles, for example, I did three, I did three different parts on Mr. Novak television series. Students, three different students. Uh, 
I did it. I did it part opposite Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin, who I played his son. I was about 25. I played 13. <laughs> they never. Wow. <laughs> they, never, they never said I was 13. And when Marvin tried to take, we were, we were pioneers, farmers. And when he tried to take me out of the wagon, carry me out of the wagon, I said, you put your hands on me, Marvin, and I'll kill you. <laughs> I'm jumping out of this wagon. <laughs> so I played a lot of roles for people who were younger than I was because I looked so young, because I was short, and because my face was young face. Once that started to change, once you put me next to a 17-year-old and I was 28 or 29, and you saw that I wasn't the same age, that I was considerably older than the other real teenager, the roles stopped coming in, in frequency uh, and led to a kind of a drought. Um, uh, I, played, I, I did play a doctor in, a, in one show, and I played the, a, a patient at indeterminate age but who was a husband. So there were, there were a few roles uh, where I, I, played, I played college students or I played, I played uh, young adults. But once I stopped being, uh, looking young enough to be a teenager, those roles stopped coming. And that's Star Trek. Uh, you know, I was supposed to, Chekhov was 22. Um, I wasn't 22, I was 31, you know. Uh, but I looked young enough to appeal to the crowd they were looking for. They were looking for the 8 to 12-year-olds who wrote in pencil, you know, on line paper. You know, Dear Mr. Chekhov, you're so groovy. <laughs> that was my own. And um, I succeeded admirably with that group. They, they really thought I was groovy. And they loved my hair, which was not my hair. It was a wig. The first seven episodes was a wig. And then I went back to my own hair. And, and then I combed my hair forward, and for a year and a half, I, God forbid there should be a wind, except my hair would fly up in the air, and it would look like a mass on a, on a ship. It's very embarrassing to walk around like this all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, um, after Star Trek, certainly I was beginning to look older. Not that I was look, looking aged, but I was looking uh, more my age and... Uh, and there were actors who I think filled the bill better, who physically qualified better for the part. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think my talent uh, was lost somewhere. I just think that um, I wasn't as uh, castable. I wasn't as uh, um, a, a viable uh, a talent as I, I, I had been when I was playing a younger character. I'm curious when you uh, when you got the role on Star Trek, you show up and you're the new guy, and you're walking into a cast that has already been together for a year. They've already worked together. They've already gotten to know each other. There's a dynamic already built in. Um, how how long did it take for you to feel at home there, like you were part of this? Right, right. Well, I would say. I started in June, it's probably October or November, when anybody would speak to me, with the exception of Bill. Bill was my friend from the first day I was on the set. Really? Literally, he dropped to his knees and said, it's an honor to have you on our show. I, 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 okay, because see, I don't know you that well, but yeah. somehow that sounds really strange to me. Does it? Yeah. 
I would never just call you a liar because, again, don't know you that well. Liar is a good affirmation. <laughs> no, my friend, you would call him an actor. It's acting. Ah, you, acting. You're, you're creatively <laughs> emoting. I'll tell you a very story in very cogent terms. Okay. It's a very succinct little story that will reveal all. <laughs> We've done the show for two years with all the other actors. I got along with everybody. Except, I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, I got along with everybody. We came back to do the movie. That uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, we had a press gathering. We had 200 people from the press, photographers and, and journalists. We were crowded onto a set in which the Star Trek Enterprise, this, the, 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 the set was built onto the soundstage. And we were all at our posts in costume. And Mr. Shatner came out and said, Hi, I want to introduce you to everybody on our show. This is George Takei. He plays Mr. Sulu. Forrest Kelly, Dr. McCoy. Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy, Michelle Nichols. Jimmy Dewan. Uh, 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 Jimmy Dewan. He got a wonderful Scottish accent. Well, he comes to me and says, And Mr. Chekhov. And that's it. That's it. No. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Get along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing. I was just embarrassed. Oh, I my don't, gosh. You know, the, 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 the shame? The shame is that it didn't embarrass him at all. <laughs> well, I, so I was going to ask, is it, is it just a kind of unawareness yeah, well, yeah. Uh, it, 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 Bill has a lot of very, very fine qualities. I'm sure if I spent another 10 years with him on the show, I would have found those too. <laughs> no, no. Uh, very talented actor, did a terrific job. We wouldn't have had, uh, I don't think we would have had uh, Star Trek series go three years, never mind uh, six motion pictures, uh, seven actually. Um, we wouldn't have had the notoriety, the celebrity. And the affection of the audience that we had, if Bill had not been our leader and had not performed his role very well, and this is without uh, this is without uh, being uh, trying to be funny, I, I, I truly mean all of this. That it was also a pain in the ass at times. Is you know is another, is another subject. Uh, I, I, we got I, I got along with everybody, except that Bill didn't know, know who I was, uh, and that became uh, you know. Uh, resulted in some discord uh, because that was an attitude he had. It was an attitude he pretty much had towards the supporting actors. Um, and, and if you listen carefully to the words that had been written by uh, Jimmy Dewan and, and George Decay and Michelle Nichols uh, and Walter Kennedy, you will, you will get the sense that there was some you know, some um, Lack of harmony, lack of camaraderie, lack of friendship there. It wasn't terrible. Uh, it just it just wasn't meant to be. So I, and, and in general, it was a terrific experience. I loved everybody. The forest was a terrific human being. I was particularly fond of the forest. He was a great guy. Um, and everybody else was fun to work with. 
there was no, uh, uh, Leonard was stoic and, and distant, but you never felt that he was being aloof with the territory. He was Mr. Spock. So as soon as you accepted that, then you accepted that that's the way he was going to behave. So it never interfered. And it never felt any animosity. Now, um, just to flip that for a moment, not, not that you've asked me, but just as comparison, so you know that, I, that I'm not a malcontent and I'm gonna, you, know, you would easily come to dislike. When I, when I heard Babylon fly, da 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 B-A-P-Y-L-O-N-F-I-T. Um, I had a great time. It was wonderful. Um, I loved the role I played. Did you ever watch Babylon I love the role you played, too. It's, uh, I, I'm sorry. I know that this disparages the listeners from Mission Log, but Babylon 5 is my favorite show. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. There you well, go. it, was, it, was a real, it was a real part. You know, it wasn't Warp Victor Kipton. Warp Victor Kipton. Warp Victor Kipton. Oh, Bester was, is one of the best, most nuanced, crafted characters I've ever watched. Bless your heart. Uh, where do I send the cash? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so everybody, of course, you know, 20 years had passed or 15 years had passed, and we had already, we had already been uh, bequeathed the icon status. Um, so we, we, we could hardly do wrong in any case, but um, everybody treated me terrifically. All the actors, the executives, the, J. Michael Straczynski, who wrote and produced uh, almost all the shows, um, he was terrific. I, I enjoyed working with all of the actors. Uh, we got along great. And the roles were, were pertinent. They were, uh, they were uh, uh, central to the story. I wasn't just there as a prop. I wasn't there as furniture. I wasn't there simply to help promote the storyline without any sense of who the character was. It was you, you got the sense of what, who Mr. Bester was and what he believed. And he was he was um, germane to what transpired on on the ship, uh, what, what the story was about. Uh, what, he, what he did had a conse- had consequences. So I had a, I, I did twelve episodes over five years. And I had a great time working with those folks. Uh, more a measure of, of talent than playing Mr. Chekhov, because, not because I'm incredibly uh, humble. But because it, the role was, was not very challenging, you know, as I say, there was very little to do on, as Chekhov. Um, so I just want you to know that I that I, I don't walk around in a, in a cloud of gloom, and and that I I don't see myself as as a, a person of consequence. I'm okay. In the so right the, part. The, the interesting thing about about Albester is that uh, um, compared to Chekhov, that Chekhov was always very reactionary as a character. But Bester was always, he was very, um, he, was, he was a protagonist and an antagonist in a way. And I've always wanted to ask you, <laughs> I've always wanted to ask no, you about, about, about crafting Bester. Villains are only seen as villains because of how people, uh, you know, they, they make the distinction between good and evil. But Bester is one of those kind of characters that if you believe in your purpose is right, then you're not the villain. You're actually the hero in your own story. And Bester, I always believed, was the hero of his own story, protecting his telepaths and, you know, and uh, denouncing the mundanes. 
And I found that, how did you find, walk that line? How did you find that fine line to walk to not play him over the top and to make him feel as grounded as he felt? Because he always felt so real, especially when you were playing off of Jerry. You and Jerry had so many great scenes together. Jerry Doyle, that is, the late Jerry Doyle. Well, uh, first of all, um, you must have been following me around to conventions. I'm always talking about this and saying exactly what you just said. Uh, when they asked me, when people would ask me how it feels to play a villain, I, I would say I don't con- consider Bessie to be a villain. I, I don't think when you play a role, you can editorialize uh, about the character. You have to believe in the character. Um, if, if you are saying, I've got to play him as a bad guy, then you're making believe, and it's pretend. But if you can justify him to yourself as, 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 as a craftsman, then, then he's not a villain. And there are plenty of good reasons why. I mean, this, between you and me, I'm not going to tell Mr. Best through this, but there's plenty of good reasons, I suppose, not to like him. But he was doing this for his people. Uh-huh. He had a sense of loyalty. You know, he was standing up for what he believed in. These are all virtues. And uh, that's the way I approached it. I always approached it that way. Um, you know, if I was doing Commedia dell'arte or something where I was making fun of the character, that would be one thing. But uh, I'm, I'm playing somebody who people are not going to like. Uh, but you've got to be able to... In, that, in order to really not like him, um, I think you've got to believe him. You've got to believe well, yes, he really believes these things. He's not a, a cardboard villain. And we see all these superhero movies where we have you know, robots and, and, and dragons. And yeah, they're scary. And yeah, they're formidable. But you really don't care ultimately what happens to them as long as they don't get in the way of the, of the lead. Um, when we did Star Trek II, when Ricardo Montalban played Khan, he was something really to deal with. You know, he, you, the, you know, you couldn't help but feel the compassion as much as you disliked him, and as much as he was out to to get the protagonist, the protagonist in our story. He was a real human being. He had suffered a real uh, tragedy. His his wife had died as a consequence of things that had happened uh, with the crew of the Enterprise. And that's why that movie was so good, because he was, he was formidable. He was formidable not because he was the biggest and the most ferocious looking, but he be, because you could identify with his pain. That's why he was the most formidable, because under the circumstances, it's something that you could feel, and Ricardo made you feel that way. Um, and so, as far as being Bester, I, I, I never thought of him as being a bad guy. No matter what he did, I found reason for it. And I found reason that wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, some kind of evil, merciless um, vengeance in, in that purpose. It, it came from pain. It came from the pain that he, that he experienced. And, um, and, that he, and that was so important for me to be able to, to investigate, to examine, to find in myself, as we all do. We all have those things. That's what I was telling those psychology students. We all have 
these these neurotic events. We all have these these feelings uh, that get in the way that 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 involve that hurt our own self-image that cause us to act uh, in ways that we're that we're ashamed of or embarrassed by. Uh, that's who we are. That's what human beings are. They're dimensional, and an actor just has to be able to access those different dimensions, and, and that's what we do. We uh, the best ones are it's most accessible to the best ones. I mean, I watch. I gotta tell you, my my wife loves black and white movies. She uh, watches Turner all the time. I don't because the character. I mean, Dana Andrews is great at playing the same freaking character that he plays every time, you know. And that's what a lot of these and they're, you know very truthful within within very limited parameters. You know, it was always the same character. Um, that's why somebody like Frederick March comes along. You know, it's Frederick March, but my God, you feel the depth and the range and the fact that we're, we're watching somebody with a different set of values and different character. And, and, and that because he's believing in them, we believe in him. And because he, he is that interesting to watch, we, we accept who that person is and we go along with it. It's, I'm really you know, going off the beaten path here. But uh, that's a very long answer to a relatively simple but very profound question. Um, I loved it. There are, not, there, are not, there, are no, there are no good villains. There are only – wasn't that the question about villains? Yeah. Right. There, he wasn't – villains aren't villains in their own story. Right. They're the hero. Yeah, I'm saying there are no good villains. There are only good actors. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I have, I have one. I have one indulgence, though, I, and I've always wanted to. Now that I have a chance to actually meet you in semi-person, I've always wanted to tell you of all of the lines. I mean, and they're they were all brilliant. All your performances were brilliant, but the my favorite of all time was with you and Jerry. And Jerry just walks by you as walks by Bester, and you said, "Anatomically incur- impossible, Mister Garibaldi, but you are welcome to try." <laughs> that was Bester. That was also J. Michael Straczynski. He yeah. wrote it. But that was Absolutely. that was bester to the letters. Like try and intimidate him, try and be sly with him. He, he's just so set in his way and his belief that you can't shake him. And again, my two my my two experiences with you, Walter, as an actor, Chekhov as one part of your career and Bester. And I just felt like I've never really seen you and 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 please take this with all the respect that, it, that, I, that I intend, I never really had a chance to really experience your talent until I saw Bester. And, and you were able to nuance this character in ways where he was kind of you know, almost tropishly evil, but when you realized that your, your mistress was taken from you, then he became sympathetic. Uh, he became um, you know, power hungry. He became almost a father-like to Byron. So I was like, wow. You know, and this is all in 12 episodes, and it's, it was just fascinating to watch, and I really, really appreciate uh, your contribution to the show. You still haven't told me where I send the cash. <laughs> <laughs> this Look, is all from the heart. Just, just small, <laughs> small unmarked bills. That's all we ask for. <laughs> hey, I, a, a moment ago, you mentioned the Wrath of Khan, and I, I just have to ask, I mean, is that 
sort of the the height of your work as Chekhov within Star Trek? Is that your your go to, or you know, because it's probably the most iconic of the Star Trek original cast films, um, the most popular of those films. Well, I think it was a terrific. When I read the script, I thought, now this is a well structured story. It had everything in place. It didn't feel academic. It felt, but it felt like all the elements were there. We had the, the, the protagonist, we had the antagonist, we had the objective that needed to be achieved. Uh, we had dimensional relationships. Uh, uh, it all felt, it, it was just great storytelling. And I commend Nick Meyer for that, because he, he was really the writer of record on, on, that, on that script. Uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was a terrific story. Um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the role I played. Uh, I think the best role uh, for Chekhov was Star Trek IV, uh, when he, he actually um, got to do stuff on his own. Yes. My God, he even had a theme, he had theme music for Chekhov. <laughs> theme music. Chekhov had his own music. What more can you ask? Um, so I, I think I think that was that was the best film. Um, I thought the scene between Bill and Leonard in, in the car hysterical, great fun. I think everybody did a terrific job. Uh, and and I, I digress, and that's what happened when you're 83 years old. But uh, pull me back in if I go. No, you, you've earned straight. it. You're allowed. I mean, look, you're, yeah. you're talking about the 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 heights of success of an actor. Uh, first of all, TV series, uh, series of successful movies theme music written for your character and action figures. Okay. I, I would find it very hard to add up more markers of success than, than those things. So, you know, done quite well. You take me the action figures and the bubblegum cards. I mean, as a kid, I clicked the bubblegum. Yeah. But that's not, believe it or not, that's, I was going to make a nice statement about somebody else. Believe it or not, I'm putting away the I for a moment and talking about him. And I just want to say about George, okay, we don't, we no longer get along, okay? But he's the most professional actor I've ever worked with. Mm. He had the toughest luck. Um, if, if I felt that the approbation I received was misplaced, I wouldn't know what he must feel. Because every time there was a good part or a good scene, it was somehow he lost it. They took it away. Some circumstance occurred, and for no fault of his own, he lost it. And Star Trek IV was a perfect example of that. There was a scene, um, and George complained, rightly so, that he had not been getting um, his measure in, in the films, and he complained. And uh, Howard Bennett, our producer, said, you come up with a scene, and... Uh, if I can do it, I'll put it in. Well, I do. I guess I, guess I do come into it. Because George came to me and said, "Look, um, I have an idea for a scene, and I think about." And he told, he told me what the circumstances were. Mm-hmm. And he says, "My idea is that walking the streets of San Francisco, and some little kid, some little Asian American kid, sees me and says, why are you wearing that funny costume?'" And then I go into, "Well, many years ago, and we find out that this child." is your great-great-great-grandfather. Right. And I said, that's a terrific idea, George. 
No, no, you know, you know. I screwed it up. Screwed it up. Just, oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'll, I'll tell him that many years ago we, we, we were on this planet. And I said, well, we can go a step further, George. We can make this kid your great, 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 great grandfather. And I said, and that will be a zinger. He says, oh, my. And I said, yes, oh, my. We told, we told Harv, and Harv said, I like it. And it was in the picture. They cast the kid. It was an outdoor scene. The kid they cast said, I don't want to do it. Uh. And we waited all day as the sun sunk in the horizon. Right. And the kids, I don't want to do it. And then the sun went down below the horizon, and the kids said, I'll do it now. Uh. Too late. The scene was cut from the movie. Oh. It would have been his best scene in any of the films. Yeah. But the, the most extraordinary thing about that story is not, is not the... Uh, the capriciousness or the or or, or underscoring how uh, painful it can be to be an actor, but his professionalism that this was something he'd been waiting for, it didn't happen, and he was very hurt by it, and he complained to no one. And I thought that was amazing. That's a professional act. So whatever other problems we've had. My kudos to him for his professionalism. And I saw it more than once in, in the course of all the, the episodes we did together and in the films we did together. I, I just want to ask you about one last uh, Star Trek thing here because we're, we're talking about favorites and I noticed that in your book, you called out one of my favorite episodes as one of your favorite episodes, which is Who Mourns Radoneus? And I, I feel like it's criminally underrated, underappreciated. I mean, look, it's a little unfair because, honestly, every Star Trek is somebody's favorite somewhere. Uh, but the, that is a particularly good episode to me. And I'm just curious uh, what of that really speaks to you. And, um, and, and are there, there are other sort of... Uh, on Mission Log, we talk about morals, meanings, messages. Uh, are there morals, meanings, messages elsewhere in Star Trek that really speak to you? Well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there are. What speaks to me about that film is Michael Forrest, the actor. Um, he was a Shakespearean-trained actor. He played the god Apollo. Uh, he did it beautifully. He did it so beautifully. Uh, I just thought it was a terrific performance. And, uh, I, uh, and I, I think that it was very effective because of him. I will add, as an aside, and giving you a little glimpse of the dirty old man that I am, I was mad about uh, the young lady who played uh, Leslie Parrish. Who isn't? Uh, who isn't? Uh, Come on. Yeah. You know, that, you know that she was glued into that costume and the uh, lights were very hot. <laughs> and I on my knees walking with this gray mouth. We reach, Walter. Well, uh, we reach. The only episode that I that I took exception to. There were some that were better than others. Yes, Fox Brain was kind of a strange, crazy episode. <laughs> yeah, it was a little hokey, but the only episode that I took exception to philosophically, I, 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 I think it was a private little war, I'm not sure, but it's, it's one where the Klingons are arming this faction and we're arming this faction yeah. to, to achieve the balance of power. 
Yep. Now that was the argument at the time involving Vietnam, involving uh, the animosity we had with other powers. Right. And it's never a justification. Balance of power, for me, is never a justification. Because they can only only lead to ruin. You're going to get, you're going to use bigger bombs, we'll use bigger bombs. And ultimately, it's going to mean, it's going to be the destruction. And it's going to be the end of the world. So, I I took exception to that episode, and I think somebody came up with an explanation that made it more um, palatable, but I don't remember what it was. But uh, since it's not in my head, um, I, I just thought I'd throw that in. I, I think, you know, when, when we talked about that episode on our show, um, it, it came down to the uh, sort of the, the sense of despair, a very genuine despair that we don't have the right answer to that problem. Clearly, at the time, they were making it as an allegory about what was happening in Vietnam. Um, but it was the one time on Star Trek, the original series, where the best and the brightest minds with the best of intentions could not come up with the right solution. And maybe that spoke to that audience at the time, saying, we simply don't know what the right answer is. And maybe that's what resonated with that audience. Well, doesn't make it, it doesn't make it any more palatable. No, I was going to say, it's very generous of you. Uh, and I, I would like to believe that that was the, 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 the raison d'etre. But on the other hand, um, um, uh, I'm not sure that, it, 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 if that was the case, it was, it was too subtle. I think it was too subtle for the general audience. At least it was too subtle for me because I didn't get it. But uh, I, I, I'd rather go away thinking that and carrying around this idea that I've had all these years. We were in a terrible time. We were in the worst possible time. I grew up during the Second World War. I, I remember what that was like. I was nine in 1945 when the war ended. Uh, I didn't think I would ever live to see a time as horrendous again. And I'm scared of us by what we're going through now. Um, we said I could say whatever I wanted to. I don't want to proselytize. And yet the Star Trek audience has changed. It was a time when I would have the vast majority of folks would probably agree with me. But now Star Trek is a mass media event. And that means it appeals to people other than those who are looking for humanity and looking for a better world. It, it means it appeals to people we're looking for bigger and better explosions and, 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 and pyrotechnics that take your breath away. Um, and those folks are not necessarily on the same page as those uh, who originally tuned in. But um, uh, Star Trek will always be first in my heart, even though I love my experience on Babylon 5 more. But I, because it was a show that had you know, a statement worth saying, you guys are testament to that because after all these years, you're in there still pitching it in your own way. Um, I'm proud to be, have been a part of that, proud to have been a part of a, a series that was making a statement that uh, we, we need to, we need to, come, we need to um, accept and embrace and, 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 and be our future. It isn't our future yet, you know, uh, but at, at some juncture, we, we have to. We have to believe that that's what the world can be. That we can have seven characters on a, sta- on a set divergent in ethnicity, um, nationality, 
race, sex, uh, culture, and have them all love each other and, and, and seek a better world. And, uh, and that probably is as good a place as any uh, as, uh, as I can go to sign off with you guys because I know you're looking at your clock and you're saying, I get out of here. <laughs> you would be right. Hey, we, we could do this all night, but I imagine like probably want to have a bite to eat. You probably want to get back to your family life. <laughs> Walter, I cannot thank you enough. This was uh, very kind, very generous of your time. And I really enjoyed the book. What? <laughs> One more thing. You're, you're, you're gesticulating wildly, please. <laughs> you guys are you're associated with Robin. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just want to tip my hat to Rod, I'm Rod Roddenberry. You know, I, I got a, um, I got a star in the fame. I don't know, ten years ago, whatever it was, and uh, when they first started making those 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 Walk of Fame stars, they were like thirty dollars, thirty dollars. You had to invest to get a star in the Walk of Fame. By the time it came around to me, it was thirty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars. I would not. I would not come up with that money. I'm not going to come up with thirty thousand dollars for my own star. The fans came through admirably. They came up with a great measure of that money themselves. They they pitched it, and for that I'm enormously proud uh, and and grateful. And Rod Roddenberry came up with a very sizable amount of money on his own to make it happen. So my hat goes off to Rob um, uh, for, for being his father's son and being for his own man, being his own man. And I just want to make sure that that is, that is spoken so that everybody knows it. Well, absolutely. Keep it in. Could not disagree with you at all. Uh, he's uh, a heck of a guy. And I, I know that Norman and I both feel honored to be able to work with him and produce a show like this and uh, keep kind of spreading the word of Star Trek. So thank you for that. Great. Thank you, guys. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.